but then we know he also becomes increasingly an odd one out relationally too as the gospel story progresses. So let's read from the beginning of chapter 22. Just read the first couple of verses just to remind us of the setup, the context of what's happening. Um, it goes like this. This is now the Thursday um, just before what we would consider to be Easter weekend, just before the crucifixion. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes, these religious leaders, they were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. And then it comes to verse 3, so it should come up on the screen, here we go. It says, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. And then we're going to skip to verse 20, 21. Um, the next chunk of verses is what we looked at a few weeks ago uh, with regard to the Last Supper and Jesus initiating uh, the new covenant, this um, yeah, he offers them. He says, this is my new eternal binding promise to you, sealed forever in my blood, my very own blood, to ensure its permanence. It's like, this is my offer to you of a free, eternal, everlasting, wonderful relationship with me that I will make possible. I'm inviting you, will you accept? That's what he does when he offers them the cup. This is my new covenant to you. That's what he does around the table. But then in that same breath, in verse 21, Jesus also says, but behold... The hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it, has been, as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this? And then following that, they, um, some of them are going almost three different directions. Some, some of them, we don't know what happens to them, they just do something for Thursday evening. But Judas then goes off to find his co-conspirators to make the final arrangements. And Jesus and just a small handful of his followers, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, which is what David spoke about last week. Judas has gone one way, Jesus and three of his followers have gone the other way. And then this happens in verse 47, a little while later. While he, Jesus, was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them, turns out it was Peter, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, if you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? We're going to look at um, two different threads here that will help us understand a bit more of what's going on and what's going on behind the scenes in hearts and in eternity. We're going to look at Judas's journey to betrayal, first of all. Follow his path through this story. But then we're also going to step back and look at Jesus' journey to, to this moment as well and see how they dovetail together and see what's actually afoot. So, the first one, Judas. 
Judas's journey to betrayal. What's going on here? Because the first thing that springs to mind is he was a disciple. How many of us have dreamed what it would have been like to be one of them 2,000 years ago? You, what if? Do you know what I mean? would it have been brilliant? He was one of them. What's happened here? He was one of the 12. He wasn't just chosen to be in this inner circle. He's one of the same 12 who you see in Luke 9 and Matthew 10. They were sent out to do the work. They were sent out to, um, by Jesus to go and preach the gospel, to proclaim the kingdom, to, to um, cast out evil spirits and to heal people, which they did. They come back and report about it. They did. And therefore, Judas did. What's going on? He preached, he delivered, he healed. He was one of those 12 that did that a few years before. So what's happened along the way? What's going on there? Was there always a nugget of deceit in this man? Because that, that we've just read, did not happen overnight, did it? Firstly, a little bit of an aside, so to speak, so to speak, because um, I want to do a couple of these just to help make sure we know where we stand in terms of Bible doctrine. It is need to know this. We need to acknowledge the fact that it is possible for God to use very imperfect people in preaching the good news and moving in the supernatural. How do we know that? We know that, firstly, because he uses you and me. <laughs> to be honest. But also... Because it runs deeper, even to the extent of even just recently, in recent years, we keep hearing about church leaders, people with massive influence, big platforms and so on, who are clearly gifted and God has done great things through. They've moved not just in the natural but also in the supernatural and so on. People who have simultaneously been indulging in long-term secret, sin, serious sin. And yet at the same time, God was using them. Thank God it's come to light for the purity and the protection of his church. That's really important. I'm glad he's done that. But those people's giftings and what God clearly did through them for the spreading of the gospel and for the benefit of many, many individuals, that's not dismissing those who are victims as well. I'm not saying that. But God's still done good stuff through these people at the same time. We need to be careful that that should never diminish the seriousness of their sin. Never entertain the thought that, I know they've been deceitful, but look what they achieved for the kingdom. That should never dismiss. That is serious sin and he's dealing with. And I'm glad it's come to light, not just for the purity and protection of the church, but hopefully for the redemption of those individuals as well. I pray that happens. Character before competence, always. <laughs> always. You look at the list for elders and deacons in the church. Other than being able to teach, everything else is about a character issue. It's not about a skill set, is it? And here at Beacon, we'd always rather have people in positions of influence who are less gifted, less, less gifted but demonstrating a Christ dependency, demonstrating a Christ-seeking character. You know, people who walk the walk, not just talk the talk. We'd rather that than people who look impressive and are very, very gifted, um, but otherwise lack accountability, vulnerability, teachability. Those things are so important and they're absolutely vital for the sake of the church, for the sake of individuals, for, for the sake of that person themselves, to be honest. That doesn't mean we wait for perfect people, because we ain't going to find them. <laughs> but it is about asking, is someone teachable? What's their character like? Let's get to know them. Let's get to know each other. Let's be prayerful about this. Let's not rush into things just because someone looks impressive. And let's, as we go, eyeball each other along the way. We do, we eyeball each other, don't we? 
How are you doing? Really? We look out for each other. We catch each other out where we can. For good reason. It's scary, <laughs> but, and it's unnerving at times, but we do it because it's all about the heart and about the character. It's not about the competence. Does that make sense? Remember, just remember this. There is a reason why giftings are called giftings. Because they're gifts. No one's earned them. No one deserves them. No one should have them more than any other person. It's a gift from God. They are gifts. Things like leadership and hospitality and administration and prophecy and healing, teaching, entrepreneurial insight, all these things. They're gifts from God to us, the church, for the sake of the church and for the, for the benefit of the world around us as well. It's a gift. You haven't earned it. No one has. And so we need to cherish them as that. Cherish them as gifts. Honour them as gifts. Operate them in, in them from that place. And that keeps us humble, helps us avoid the kind of pitfalls that I've just been discussing, and so on. It's all about the heart, isn't it? And yet, we've got Judas amongst this group of individuals whose character clearly is somewhat wonky. So what's going on here? Is it, none of this is to say that Jesus got this wrong. It'd be easy to go, well, he employed, he employed the wrong person. Give it a shove, that's it. He employed the wrong person. No, no, Jesus didn't employ the wrong person. Jesus was overly flippant about inviting Judas into his inner circle of trust. He, he missed what was really going on with him. No, he didn't. <laughs> if anyone can discern a person's character, it's Jesus, right? We can get it wrong, and sometimes we do. Jesus knew what he was doing. There's something else afoot here. What's going on? Why is this happening? Jesus even prayed at great length. He was communing and conversing with the Father all night before he finally came to appoint the twelve. He prayed for those names, and Judas was one of them. What's going on? So therefore, Jesus knew Judas' heart going in. We see it in the text. Jesus keeps mentioning it. I'll mention a few more verses later on. But even just here in the text, verse 21, Jesus lets Judas know that he knows. Verse 21, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. There's only a few there. <laughs> Judas must have thought, he knows. How does he know? And therefore, Jesus knows this. And therefore, this is an agreed path to take that betrayal will play a part in Jesus' death. The maker of man himself will not only be betrayed by his creatures in general, by humanity in general, being put to death, but also on a personal level. That's a big take-home we need to take from this. We'll come back to this later. We'll look at that, explore that a bit more deeply. But also, something else just to mention is that it's also, therefore, an easy temptation to consider, well, maybe Judas was a fool guy. Maybe he was set up for this. God wanted personal betrayal to feature in his death and therefore someone had to play the part. Oh, he'll do. No, he's not a fool guy. We can never say this is not Judas's fault. Oh, it was a setup. You know, He was the unfortunate one on the receiving end of God's plans. No, we can't say that at all. On an earthly level even, Judas made choices. And there were even choices that suited his co-conspirators' plans as well. Having an insider changed everything for them as well, didn't it? Until now, they've been fearful that Jesus has become too popular among the people. So that's why they have this plan. 
But now they can intercept Jesus in a private setting. Jesus even refers to it in those latter verses. You could have done this any time when I was in the temple, but you're doing it now. They only wanted to do it in a private, quiet setting, didn't they? See if they can get away with it. And also, having an insider, Judas, if all plans go wonky, they can blame him, can't they? It works for them. On an earthly level, you can see Judas and they made choices. But even on a cosmic level, a bigger, grander scale, he is also on a predetermined path. Jesus, God himself, allowed it for his own reasons. But none of that is to say that it negates the fact that he is, as an individual, he is complicit. A helpful clue to Judas's personal involvement in this arrives in today's verse 3 that we read right near the beginning, where it says, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. Satan entered into Judas. What does that mean? Now, again, this doesn't mean it's some kind of puppeteering scenario. See, it's not Judas's fault. Satan entered him and made him move and do things. No, that's, that's not how it works. What this is doing, this is actually revealing the moment when what was an acquaintanceship became a partnership. Acquaintances became partners. This is that moment. Judas and Satan have been circling each other for a very long time. And for so long that finally they seal the deal. And it says Satan entered him. So, biblically you can't argue that Judas is puppeteered by Satan. Or simply that it's not his fault. Or that he was effectively puppeteered, coerced by God, any of that. You can't at all. Even just on a general principle rather than his individual principle. Generally, you look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 13. The first humans, Adam and Eve, they've sinned. They've, They've... They've stepped away from what God asked of them and they thought they knew better. And what happens? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. As it, God goes to Adam, doesn't he? And he goes, wasn't me, it was her. So he goes to the woman and she goes, wasn't me, it was the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. God says very much otherwise. God has a problem with that. He will not accept that. You can't pass the buck. And throughout scripture that continues. God continues to make it very clear that we are to be held accountable for our sins and our choices. We can't blame Satan for it. We can't blame other people. And so when it comes to Judas himself, you look at John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus says, Did I not choose you, the twelve? But one of you is a devil. So he knew back then, didn't he? But he's not saying one of you has been hijacked by the devil. One of you has been coerced by. One of of you has been commandeered by. He's literally, one of you is a devil. He's describing the man's character. He's not letting him off lightly. He's not saying it's not his fault. And then a bit later, John chapter 13, verse 10, and he's talking to the 12 again. You are clean, but not every one of you. He knew the state of that man's heart, didn't he? And he's holding him to account. And it's revealed in John chapter 12, verse 5, there's the moment where Mary breaks the the expensive jar of ointment on Jesus' feet, anoints his feet and washes his feet with her hair. Judas says, John 12, verse 5, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? It could have been put to better use, that's what he's saying. And it says, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. 
And this is all before the Bible tells us that Satan entered Judas. He's making choices along the way. His dark, hidden inclinations are already there and they're being fed and watered by him along the way. It's a bit like Gollum with the ring in Lord of the Rings. If you've read the books or seen the films, he's got his precious ring, just like he'll do anything for. He'll, he'll murder for it. That's his precious. And the same, Judas, he has his precious desires that he knows he can't reveal in the light, but instead he hides them in the dark places and allows to grow. He nurtures them and he feeds them and he treasures them. So this whole thing about Satan entering Judas, just one more aside, again, just to make sure we're clear where we stand on this. The question of can a Christian be possessed by an evil spirit, by a demon? We've even talked about this recently, haven't we, as elders? The answer is no. It is possible for humanity. Those kind of things happen. I've dealt with them. I've met them. But as a Christian, you need to know this. If you belong to Christ, you have Holy Spirit dwelling in you. The Bible tells Ephesians chapter 1, he comes as a deposit for your safe eternity. He dwells in you. And beyond that, we can be filled with the Spirit to overflowing, to experience that abundant life now. Holy Spirit dwells in you. He will not be housemates with evil. Okay, just need to know that. He's not going to share a house with evil. But you can be influenced by evil spirits. There is a place for that. They might not make a home in you, but they can piggyback. Does that make sense? We as Christians are not immune to spiritual oppression. Christians can sin, <laughs> we all do, and that can spiral, that can lead to addiction and to deeper, deeper entrenched habits and so on. And that can then have a spiritual element attached to it, um, spirits teasing you and coercing you and so on, but they are limited in their power, they can't reside in you. It still requires prayer ministry nevertheless. We've had, to, we've had to do that for certain individuals who, are, who belong to Christ, who are saved. But there's a spiritual element to their habits that they can't break and so on. But we just also need to acknowledge what's actually occurring there. Christians can't be possessed by, holy, by evil spirits. But they can be coerced and influenced. Just need to be able to discern between flesh and spirit sometimes. But that's what's occurring. But here, here we have a man where clearly the devil ends up residing in, which speaks a lot about where his, the state of his heart in the first place. And the question was, Judas, was Judas ever saved? I think there's a good clue there, isn't there? Here we have a guy who looks like a believer. He looks like a faithful follower. He acted as one too. He even went out and operated in the supernatural. There is such a thing as counterfeit, isn't there? But inwardly, his heart is blackened. And it leads him to this point of no return. This, this verse just punches me in the stomach. There's a point of no return here. When he and the devil, they become no longer just acquaintances, but chosen indwelling partners, housemates. And it's from there, it then says, verse 6, he consented and sought an opportunity. He went off to see it into full bloom, if you like. Judas continued to then make choices that lead to the ultimate betrayal. And again, another clue to the state of his heart by now is that he agrees to do this for a small number of silver coins. Now, it's 30 pieces of silver. Uh, he even asked for it. They don't just offer it in the first place. Matthew 26, verse 15. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? 
will you pay me for this? He makes sure he, he seeks it out, and they agree to give him 30 pieces of silver. That wasn't a lot of money. It's a fulfillment of a prophecy. Zechariah prophesied about it, 30 pieces. But 30 pieces of silver is also, it's, it's a number of weeks' work, wages at the time, anywhere from one to four months' wages. That's it, really. For us, it'd be a few thousand. It's a lot, but it's not a lot. Does that make sense? But it's also, you look at Exodus chapter 21, it's the compensation required for a slave's death. It's the value of it, considered to be, by those religious leaders, the value of a slave. So Judas is willing to give up his friend for a number of weeks' wages. And in that, Jesus, Jesus is considered by Judas and by the religious leaders as being the same value as a slave. He's considered in the same light as that. Judas clearly loved money more than he valued Jesus. And then we see that he also sought the opportunity to do so, still in a cowardly way anyway, he sought to do it in the absence of a crowd, is what it says. See, he's not just a man who's caught up by some opposing ideology who's willing to do some atrocity in public. We see that today in the news headlines sometimes. He's not caught up, he's not persuaded by some great philosophy or political argument, anything like that. He's just trading Jesus. He's not even trading Jesus for a lifetime of luxurious retirement. He's not getting enough to retire on, is he? He's getting a few weeks' worth of salary. He's simply been making selfish choices in each moment, each one fueled by his festering heart's inclinations. That's all he's doing. He really can't help himself. And that is a scary place to be, isn't it? But then it also, when it reaches this point, it also shows us an example of when God hands people over to their sinful desires. Ultimately, ultimately God goes, you really want this? Okay, have it. That's quite terrifying. We really need to take our sin seriously, don't we? There's um, the moment with um, Pharaoh in the people's um, Israelites rescue from Egypt in Exodus uh, as led by Moses. Mo Moses follows God's call and, and the miracles and um, persuading Pharaoh with each, each plague and so on, the persuading Pharaoh to let, his, let God's people go. And time and time again, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then there comes a point, it's all Exodus 8, Exodus 9, if you read there. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Then there comes a point, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. There's a moment where God goes, you really want that? It's yours. That's a scary place to be. God ultimately giving you what you want and you discover yourself doomed. James chapter 1, verse 14 says, But each person... Shall I use a hand, Dild? It's flashing. I think it's just... James chapter 1, verse 14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We can all relate to that. I'm sure we've all had those moments, haven't we? Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. 
temptation leads to the actual action. It says, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Judas reached a point where God gave him what he wanted and he hands him over fully to it. That's Judas's journey through this. But what about Jesus's journey to betrayal? What's happening at the same time? Because we see both a grander aspect but also a personal aspect to this as well. Personally, we need to recognize this is a very personal thing for Jesus. Jesus considered him and called him friend. Now, it's one thing to be let down by a system or let down by an institution, isn't it? Something impersonal. You know, when the NHS fails, fails a person, that happens sometimes. That's awful. Or even recently, we've had the um, uh, post office scandal, haven't we? Where innocent people have been accused, charged, convicted of stealing thousands of pounds that they never took, and there's a massive cover-up behind the scenes, higher up, to try and get away with it. It's awful. Now, that is, that is just abysmal. We are aggrieved enough ourselves on behalf of those people, let alone if we were to have been one of them, right? We clamour for justice for it, don't we? We cry out for it. We feel frustrated and impotent about the situation. It's just awful. And again, it's even worse, obviously, if you're one of the individuals actually affected by it. That's all bad enough. But when you're betrayed by someone that you've considered a friend, a family member, someone you've eaten with, someone you've been vulnerable with, someone you hoped would be on your side, then the pain truly becomes immeasurable, doesn't it? And that's what we're witnessing here. This is deeply, deeply personal. And Jesus was willing to suffer it. Why? Couldn't he have written himself a better storyline? <laughs> oh, I don't... Personal betrayal, don't like the sound of that. I think I'll just remove that bit. He could have done. He's the author of it all, isn't he? So why has this happened? This is the story that he allowed to unfold for himself. Why did he include this? Well, again, let's look at the grander scheme of things. Because we've seen Judas's own path from temptation to taking opportunity to finally being trapped by his hardened heart. He is responsible, and yet God has also allowed it for some reason too. It was all Judas's choice, and God gave him repeatedly plenty of opportunity been around Jesus to repent. He spent three years with Jesus, watching and listening and learning and practicing. He heard all of Jesus' sermons, didn't he? He had plenty of opportunity to realize and repent, but then God eventually handed him over to the sin that he'd chosen. But God also allowed it for a grander reason. Otherwise, it's just arbitrary. God somehow allowed personal betrayal to be a significant part of Jesus' journey to the cross. Why is that? Well, we can see the mix of God's choices and Judas's choices spoken aloud. In verse 22, Jesus says, um, the Son of Man goes as it, as it has been determined, as it has been preordained. But he says, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. You see it there? There's an element of this that is determined but there's also an element of participation in this as well. Now, the whole subject of free will and God's sovereignty does our heads in, doesn't it? Makes your brain melt. Partly, that's because we've got this Greek mindset. The way our brains are wired, Western society, we've got this Hellenistic 
um, mindset and how our brains work with logic. So we've got free will, sovereignty. That's not a Venn diagram that merges in the middle. That's two separate circles, right? <laughs> I make my choices and God decides. No, they don't go together. The Hebrew mindset goes free will, sovereignty. Yep, it's fine. It quite happily sits in the mystery of that all. We've just got this overly logical way of thinking in our Western modern world that goes, that can't work. Well, I've read the Bible, it does. I don't understand it, but it does work. And some of that we need to appreciate that God's foreknowledge is wrapped up in all this. He exists outside of time, doesn't he? He created it and exists outside of it. And so his foreknowledge is involved in what is ordained. He operates outside of time. He knows our hearts ahead of time, long before we're even born. And he will ensure that all we do, we humans, everything we do will serve to ultimately bring him glory. Amen? That's what he does. He will not be deprived of glory by our actions. He will not let that happen. And yet we remain responsible for the actions that we choose. We still have the ability to choose. And God knew Judas's heart, and he used it to show that Jesus' death on the cross was not some paper exercise, but a personal action by a personal God in laying down his life for his friends, even when that's come to pass through personal betrayal. Jesus' Jesus's death is, a, is the most personal sacrifice. I'm going to keep saying that word again. Personal. It's a personal sacrifice laid with personal hurt against him. It's not just a cold transaction for the masses. Jesus felt every wound, the physical ones, the emotional ones, the spiritual ones, and so on. And he died in this way in order to defeat the power of sin and death, but also to show us how much he loves us, regardless of what we are capable of committing against him personally. I love you this much. I could have made my death easier, but I refuse to because I want to show you. That's how much he cares. All of us have betrayed him. It's what we do. In its purest terms of what betrayal means, we are all guilty of being disloyal to our maker who loves us. We're actually all guilty of helping his enemy at points. Think about it. We all have in different ways. For some reason, the iPad's just rebooted. That's helpful. Thankfully, by his incredible grace, by his incredible repentance, uh, by his incredible grace and mercy, repentance and forgiveness are immediately possible. Our relationship with our maker can always be repaired in this life while we're still here, thankfully. So grateful. It's made possible by this very death that Jesus confronted head on. Judas squandered that opportunity and he chose his fate. He was regretful. See, in Matthew 27, he handed back the money. And he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. There is regret. And then he went away and hanged himself. Committed suicide. But the repentance never fully came to be. It was only regret. 
Regret is not repentance. Regret is wishing something was different. Repentance is turning the other way and seeking forgiveness. Very, 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 very different. And we have a clue in terms of his eternal destiny because Matthew 26, Jesus says it would have been better if he hadn't been born. And then Acts chapter 1, it says that Judas went to his own place. It's indicated he's in hell. Very sobering, isn't it? And it leaves us with this sobering lesson. Religious practice, even the working of miracles, that does not necessarily demonstrate a saving faith. It's always from the inside out, not the outside in, isn't it? So what we need to do, we need to guard our hearts and need to work out our salvation. Those small sins, those minor indiscretions we're all capable of, joining in gossip, lustful looks, leaning towards a miserly heart from the inside when you have choices to make about giving. It could be anything. Even those, they are still a wound in our soul and sometimes in others as well. Some sins are bigger than others in terms of sizable impact on yourself and on other people. Consequences vary according to the crime and so on. You know, there's a, there's a difference between you know, killing a man in anger that is very different to not paying for a Mars bar, right? There are degrees of sin, but every single sin still falls short of God's glory. Every single sin still falls short of God's desire for us, his better will for us. And every single sin offers you an open door to a more slippery slope. Judas's journey, it can be traced through the gospel story. And even if we don't know all the ins and outs, we know enough to see that he was one who was harboring feelings, probably because of being an odd one out, but for whatever reason, he harbored these feelings, didn't he? He separated himself relationally. He dipped into the money bag when no one was looking, all this kind of stuff. He acted piously about a woman's extravagant generosity in order to look good. He kept trying to hide it, didn't he? It was festering in the dark. All, of course, then led to him eventually betraying Jesus for just a few weeks' wages. It didn't happen overnight. Marital affairs don't happen overnight, do they? They start with a small secret, what if? But instead of that being squashed, that's allowed to grow in the dark. It's exactly what we were hearing about earlier. Leaving stuff in the dark rather than bringing it into the light. Judas's betrayal did not happen overnight. It started with a spoonful of resentment and a slice of love for money. We can all be in danger of harboring both of those as well as other things, can't we? Just got to guard our hearts, haven't we? I love, actually, the demonstration of the disciples. Verse 23, when Jesus says, um, the hand of him who betrays um, which betrays me is with me on the table because it's one of you what do they do? they all start questioning each other is it me? is it you? who is it? as if they don't know they're not going well it's not me and Judas is the only one who's looking a bit petrified they're all asking who is it? is it could it be me? they're all terrified of the fact it might be them I love that that is a really good demonstration of their hearts they all knew they were capable I love it. It demonstrates real, honest, humble, repentant hearts, doesn't it? Let's be those people. Let's not ever assume that's not for me. 
Let's always realize that it could be me. Let's recognize that. That's good. It's a good place to be. Let's be vulnerable with God. Let's be vulnerable with each other. Is it me? Is it you? Let's find out. It's a good thing to do, isn't it? Let's worship him with our thought lives and let's do it together. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, we recognize that worshiping you is far more than a nice melody in a song. It's how we conduct our thought lives, our actions, how we speak, what we harbor, what we treasure, what we do and what we don't. With all our bodies and all our minds. You tell us to love you with all our hearts and minds and soul and strength. Lord, we, we want to do that, but we can't do that in our own strength. Boy, do we need your help. We would love to be people who truly honor you in every single way. Help us to be those people. Help us to only bring glory to you. Help us to accept the fact that you call us and you ordain our days. You write our days. That's what David talks about in the Psalms. But also to recognize that we have choices to make in that. We can choose to step into that. Or choose to step out of it as well sometimes. Lord, we, we want to honor you for who you are. You are the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the God of all gods. We are not. And yet you gave of yourself, walking the most uncomfortable path ever. In order that we might be set free from this cycle of sin that we can get lost in. We thank you. But help us to not squander it, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. Thank you.